Kiwi late. It's going to be close here. Kiwi's going to beat them all with a mighty run. Driving lane races up the Manufique, takes the lead in the cup. Out wide is Gunsin, Stormy Seas, but Piping Lane's going to win the cup. But it's Doremus nicely clear in the Melbourne Cup. He's got the cup run. He's holding nothing like a Dane, and Doremus wins the cup. Rain Lover and Allsop, they're going head and head. Rain Lover on the inside. Rain Lover's got his neck in front and won by a neck. Champagne and Jezebel. Champagne, Jezebel, flying back. Jezebel, Champagne, they hit the line. Jezebel wins the cup from Champagne. But a champion becomes a legend. McCarty Deborah has won it. American Trevian. Celebrating Australia's greatest race, the history of the Melbourne Cup. Pelion coming from the clouds on the outside, rising fast is too far in front, however, and in the run of the boat, rising fast, going to win the Melbourne Cup by two legs from Helion. Right fingers goes to Zima, they hit the line, locked together, dead eight. A dead eat in the Melbourne Cup, Seymour and Lightfingers. Rain Lover's eight lengths in front, going further away. And Rain Lover wins the Melbourne Cup by ten lengths. Here's Brian Martin. In 1895, the famous American writer Mark Twain arrived in Melbourne prior to the Melbourne Cup. He attended Flemington to see the outsider Araria, a three-year-old filly at 33-1, to 1, beat the favourite Hover in the Cup. The race was only 34 years old, and 85,000 gathered at Flemington for the great race. In his book, Following the Equator... Twain wrote of his visit, quote, Nowhere in the world have I encountered a festival of people that has such a magnificent appeal to the whole nation. The Melbourne Cup astonishes me, unquote. A horse race that is rich in our culture, from the battlers to the rich Arabs of Dubai, from the Irish and the English, they come for the great race. Welcome to the history of the Melbourne Cup. Well, it's always nice to chat with Andrew Lemon, my good friend and historian and a wealth of knowledge of the Victoria Racing Club. And when I think of the Melbourne Cup, I think of Andrew Lemon and I think of where did it all begin? Andrew, welcome. Well, thanks, Brian, because we both share this interest in the history of this race. It's a race that keeps on making history every year. And I just love the stories and the, the, the whole uh, the whole business of the Melbourne Cup. has been going on for a long time and really goes right back to the beginnings of Melbourne. You and I have actually shared a few trips on the uh, Lexus Melbourne Cup tour around Australia and you go back to uh, country towns and uh, some of the little outback towns and you realise the annual races would be the opportunity for everybody to get together, uh, have a party, uh, bring their horses from far and wide and that's exactly how Melbourne racing happened in the pioneering days. Um, and really a race meeting would get going. You, you've got a line about what happens when a, when a, um, a town begins. So what, what's your take on how, how, to, how it unfolds? Well, my belief in just reading uh, up on our history of Australia, it seems that when the explorers came here and if they were going from the west to the east, from Western Australia to the eastern seaboard of, and, and to Victoria and on the way, if they discovered an area that they thought could be a place for a village or a town, from what I can gather, they'd build a church, they'd build a pub, and they'd build a racetrack. <laughs> and then... But I like your observation that then after that comes the cemetery. But <laughs> That's where they finish. <laughs> and sometimes that would happen in, in pretty quick succession. But it was very much like that in Melbourne. Melbourne was a bit different to Sydney because, as we all know, Sydney was a convict colony. Melbourne, theoretically, was, was a free place, although lots of colony, uh, convicts decided it was more attractive than Sydney. But it's, it's 50 years younger than Sydney. So when Melbourne begins, you get the pastoralists bringing sheep 
cattle and horses. And within two years of the actual settlement of the town, we know there was a, a match race, a competition between two of the young bloods who wanted to have a, a race meeting. We don't actually know where they raced. We know they had a race, and we know one of them was the town doctor. Um, so if anybody had an injury, he wouldn't have been much good if he'd fallen off himself. <laughs> and then a year after that, so that's three years after the settlement of Melbourne, you have the first big race meeting in Melbourne, and there's a couple of contemporary descriptions of it. It was down near where what we now call Southern Cross Station is and Docklands area, which... Is was, that Batman's Hill? Yeah, well, Batman's mm. Hill got um, kind of chopped down, but really when that station was, was, was built, um, there was a bit of a hill there. And if you were at, at that corner of, uh, of Spencer Street and Flinders Street, for anyone who knows Melbourne, you would have had a bit of a vantage point over a flat, swampy area. It was meant to be a very beautiful part of the world, lots of uh, wildlife but it was also a natural racetrack. And so this 1838 meeting, they'd raced the horses around that, that area. Um, and they raced there in the, in the autumn of 38, 39. Uh, the powers that be said, look, this land, you can't have that forever as a racetrack. Go and find somewhere else. And that's how Flemington began. So Flemington, when you look at the, the history of Flemington, how long had they been racing at Flemington before that first Melbourne Cup of 1861? By the time they had the first Melbourne Cup, which we think of as being the early pioneering days, they'd actually been racing at Flemington for 21 years. Um, There was actually... uh, There's a kind of period that people forget about in in Victoria's early history before gold was was discovered in 1851. In that 10, 15 years before that, it was a pastoral settlement. Um, The money was being made out of all the usual things, sheep, cattle and land dealings. Okay, so people were boom and bust. Fortunes were made and lost. Uh, This is young, um, ambitious young colonists coming out and and some of them had had actually really good thoroughbreds and they started uh, setting up the races. So by the time the first Melbourne Cup came along, there was a lot of experience in Melbourne of, of how to get a race meeting going. But that first Melbourne Cup, in a way, changed everything. And Flemington, it was on the, uh, the sort of the saltwater plains. Uh, the Maravanong is a saltwater river. Mm. Um, and we read where, in actual fact, the finishing line was along the back of the track uh, originally. Yeah, so uh, when, you're, when you're calling Melbourne Cups, uh, Brian, and you talk about they, they go out of the strait for the first time and they turn and go down the riverside, and then there's that long stretch as they go down the riverside from that turn out of the strait till they get towards the, the back of the course, the Smithfield Roadside. Now, that was the original um, finishing strait for the races, and the reason for that was when the land was first set aside as a race course, they only got the flat bit. The, the flood-prone bit, the bit that was going to go underwater if the, ri- if the river went over its banks. And they didn't stop and think about where people might like to sit and watch the races. So the hill, which is the part of the glory of Flemington, uh, most of the hill was not part of the original race course reserve. Later on, the VRC, Victoria Racing Club, was able to buy some of that extra land up on the hill and expand the course. But So when the first races were there, it was just like coming to... A picnic race. I mean, we've been to uh, to Rockhampton, which reminds me of it a bit because there's a uh, a race course right next to the river. The river had flood, um, so that set out all the the booths and temporary grandstands and so on, just like a, a country race meeting. And look, it was only a few hundred people in Melbourne. You might have got 800 coming to the races. It was a big deal, but that's the way it was for the first little while. But after a while, 
it made sense that the spectators started gravitating up to that nearby hill and suddenly they thought, actually, we should run the races so that the finish is in front of the hill. So in 1860, one year before that first Melbourne Cup, there was a big reconfiguration of, of the way the track was, was laid out. So 1860 is the first year that they actually race as we think of it now at Flemington after 20 years. And passage from the, uh, from the big city, the growing city of Melbourne, was virtually by, uh, by steamer up the river or by horse and, and carriage? Yeah, it was, um, of course, when Melbourne was started off, it was still in the days of sail. Um, and there, by the first Melbourne Cup, there was a steamer. Um, they used to make a joke that it was like having 18 unruly horses because it was, I guess that was 18 horsepower steamer. Apparently made a lot of, lot of noise. But you could travel, as you still can, from the middle of Melbourne, from the Yarra, uh, to where the Maribyrnong or Saltwater comes in at Footscray. Uh, a few years later, it became a bit smelly along there, but then you could get up to the racetrack. And to go overland, you had to make a bit of a detour up Mount Alexander Road through a little township which was given the name of Flemington. And that's how that name got attached to the race course. So the first 15 years, the course was never called Flemington. It was just the Melbourne race course. But after a time, to get there by road, you went through Flemington, so that name gravitated across to the to the track. So it's interesting in those early race meetings, as I say, Flemington referred to that local town and to where the hotel was, but not to the race course. It's a trap for uh, researchers. We love the trophy, the beautiful uh, three-handled uh, Melbourne Cup, and we tour with it now for Lexus, of course, and, and the VRC. But the this cup it's now what a century old and what what were the winning connections of archers say for instance in 1861 62 do do we know what sort of trophy they received well look for a long time it was understood that there was a gold watch as a trophy but um uh, we've done a lot of research into the uh conditions of the first melbourne cup and there was no trophy for the uh, for the first cup uh, if there was a gold watch that came into the family, it was not an official trophy. The The prize was, and it sounded like a, it was a lot of money in those days, About ended up about £930. Now, a pound was worth a lot of money, um, and you had to pay up. If you wanted to enter your horse, you had to pay £10 up before you knew what weight it got. Then the handicapper would allocate weights and this is why the Melbourne Cup always was exciting because the best horses had to carry the most weight. When the handicapper puts out the weights then the owners say oh look I don't think my horse could win with it was all in stones and pounds in those days but let's say it was being told he had to carry 65 kilos and he's going to say no no I'm not going to run him. So if you if you don't accept you've lost your 10 pounds. If you do accept if you're an acceptor, you pay another £10. And all of that goes into the kitty. And then the racing club had already put up a couple of hundred pounds as well. So that becomes the total prize. And Archer, uh, he it was sort of winner-take-all in that first Melbourne Cup. I think if the second-place getter had been from interstate, he would have got a consolation prize. But Mormon ran second to Archer twice. Mm-hmm. He was... Uh, always coming up against Archer and um, because he was a Melbourne horse he didn't get anything so Archer scooped the pool on on both occasions and that's the way the prize money went. So the actual first trophy, the earliest official trophy 
was not given until 1865 in the fifth year when the little grey pony trained at South Melbourne called Tory Boy beat the imported horse Panic, the big expensive import from England and uh, Panic was the red hot favourite but Tory Boy the grey pony knocked him off and got the first trophy. Back to Archer, 1861-1862. What happened to Archer in 1863? You would have thought that here was a chance for a horse to win three straight Melbourne Cups. On reflection, we know that one has, the great Maccabi Diva, 2003, 4 and 5. There's a story around why Archer didn't actually get into the race in that third year. Yeah, look, you'd find this hard to believe, Brian, but occasionally there used to be a bit of ill blood between uh, Melbourne and Sydney in the racing world. <laughs> you know, occasionally there'd be a, a bit of a difference of opinion. And um, so the first thing that got people's noses out of joint was that Archer was given a very heavy weight. I think it was up around the 11 stone mark or something like that. I mean, he would have had to be a super horse to win even with that weight. But he'd already been sent down um, we actually know that Archer, despite the lovely stories about him walking, he never walked from from New South Wales to Melbourne. He always came by ship. But they sent him down a couple of months. He was here in Melbourne being trained. and um, But the acceptance, I was mentioning how they how they had to pay up the second acceptance if they were going to run the race, uh, that was being sent by, by the newfangled telegraph. Tele, telegram could, could send the, the acceptance uh, through. And uh, it so happened that in Sydney, uh, they didn't realise it was a public holiday in Melbourne. So the telegram, which was accepting for Archer, was never received in time. Oh. Arrived late, and the uh, Victoria, uh, let me think, it, was, it would have been the Victoria Turf Club in those days that was running the race. They said, no, mate, you, <laughs> the rules are rules. It's arrived late. We, know, we won't accept the entry. So there was uh, hell to pay for a while there. The uh, Etienne de Mester and his mates up in Sydney were very dirty about that. And they uh, decided, um, well, you know, they, they tried to say, look, you can make an exception. And it was sent on time. It's not our fault it wasn't delivered. They said, no, no, it has to be in the hands of the, uh, of the club by that time. So there was a bit of a boycott at that stage. Ooh. And uh, none of the Sydney horses uh, raced in the 1863 Cup. And you know from your trivia pursuit, what's the smallest field that was ever in a Melbourne Cup? I think it was seven. Would That's that be right. right? Yeah. So seven ran and partly due to the boycott of the New South Wales trainers. Yeah, that's that's partly the reason. And that's why uh, a, a little horse called Banker won. And the second place getter that year was a mare called Musadora. And she, um, although she ran second, she's one of those few mares who's been placed in a Melbourne Cup who had a an offspring who won a cup. So she was the dam of Briseus, the only, no, the one of two fillies who ever won a Melbourne Cup. So Briseus was, uh, was a daughter of, of Musadora, second in 1863. But I suspect Archer would have been up against it with 11 stone in that mm. Melbourne Cup. But, mm. but that's the way it ran. But look, the next year, the New South Wales boys came back. Remembering the Melbourne Cup and the history of the Melbourne Cup, uh, fascinating stories with Andrew Lemon. We'd like to invite you back again, Andrew, because there is so much and so many tales to be told, and uh, we've just really enjoyed this this morning. Yep, we're going to uh, keep talking about your memories and mine about the Melbourne Cup. Love to do that. We're celebrating the history of the Melbourne Cup, Australia's greatest race. When we talk of Australia's greatest race, the Melbourne Cup, one name towers over all others. Cummings. James Bartholomew Cummings. Bart. The boy from Glenelg, Adelaide. 
was not 23 years old when his dad, Jim, won the cup in 1950 with the champion comic court in record time. He's about three lengths in front of the champion and he's defying the opposition. Ben Barlow in second place. Chiquita on the outside is starting to gain ground. And as they get to the half furlong post, Tommy caught the leader. Chiquita in second place is gaining at every stride, but she won't catch the champion. And uh, past the post, Tommy caught will win it by about four lengths from Chiquita. Young Bart was there as the strapper for his dad. Little did he know he'd be back at Flemington time and time again. In fact, Bart would have 88 runners in the Melbourne Cup from 1958 to 2014. He would have horses run in 45 individual cups and would train 12 winners, including five Quinellas, with a winning strike rate of 26.6%. Lightfinger throwing out a desperate challenge. Zima about a neck in front. Lightfinger's pegging him back. Lightfinger's goes to Zima. They hit the line lock together. Dead eight. A dead eat in the Melbourne Cup, Zima and Lightfingers. Galilee is swamping the field. Lightfingers takes the lead at the furlong, but Galilee shortly afterwards claimed it, and Galilee takes the lead, and Galilee's got the Melbourne Cup one with a half furlong to go. Galilee is racing away. It'll win easily. It's red-handed and red press the two reds in front, with Pat the way getting up on the inside. Red press just in front, and here's Pat Bird with a great run. It's red-handed and red press. They're going stride for stride. Red-handed got his head in front. Red-handed in Battle Heights went to the front of the 200 metre mark from Leilani. Captain Perry on the outside then is Turf Cutter and Thing Big. Leilani is getting uh, two Battle Heights and on the outside Captain Perry. Leilani just in front. Thing Big is picking it up down the outside and Thing Big has got up to win the cup. With about 200 metres left to go and Thing Big has got to the front from Medici down the outside is Holiday Wagon. But Thing Big is the leader. Holiday Wagon is coming home well followed by Medici. Then Suleiman can't win but Thing Big wins. Coming down with about 250 to go and high turnover about to be tackled by Golden Black. Golden Black on the outside has got to the front. Breakfast is coming after it. Golden Black in front, 100 to go for Breakfast joining in. Golden Black tackled by Reckless on the inside. Golden Black the outer, Reckless the rails. Golden Black just in front. Golden Black will win the cup. About 250 metres left to go and Red Nose on the outside had to move up. Red Nose on the outside is tackled by Salamander with a great run. Salamander and Hyperno is joining in down the outside. Hyperno on the outside and Salamander. Salamander, Hyperno, Hyperno, Salamander. They hit the middle of the finish. Really a dead heat between Hyperno and Salamander. Kingston Rule gets out. Kingston Rule gaps the run in the middle and the Phantom going for a run. At the 150, Kingston Rule took the lead for the Phantom getting up on the inside. It's Kingston Rule. The Phantom followed by Mr. Brooker. Kingston Rule in front, Kingston Rule wins the Melbourne Cup at the 300 metre mark, Let's Elope has raced up now to Ivory Way and Alma Hampton, Magnolia Hall superimposed, but the favourite has raced away in the Melbourne Cup, it's Let's Elope, this great bear has raced away from Ivory Way, superimposed and then Magnolia Hall and Sheba's Revenge, but Let's Elope has won the Melbourne Cup, St. Leah's reached nothing like a thing, great shot struggling, then Count Shivers, a long gap in the field for the Black Sky, though no Oscar today St. Lee in front of the 150 Bart Cummings might have his 10 Melbourne Cups. Saintly's gone two lengths, Count Sivis. Then on the inside is Senator from Sky Bay, but Saintly wins the Melbourne Cup. Saintly. No Sky Heights today. Central Park, Rogan Josh. Travel mate Zazabel coming at them. It's Central Park, the leader, Rogan Josh, coming out after him. It's Central Park and Rogan Josh. Central Park, Rogan Josh. Bart's got his 11. Rogan Josh wins the Cup from Central Park.
On the history of the Melbourne Cup, we look at the men that were a critical part of Bart's amazing success. Champion jockey Roy Higgins was one of our greatest riders, 11 times champion rider in Melbourne. Roy rode the wonderful mare Lightfingers for Bart's first Cup victory in 1965. Roy and Bart had a magnificent partnership for over 16 years, winning every feature race on the calendar. Roy sadly died in March 2014. Some years back, he told me how the association with Bart Cummings and Lightfingers began. I was walking onto the track at Caulfield and a gentleman hanging over the, the fence in the members, Mr Wally Broderick, said, excuse me Roy, he said, um, got a little horse over in Adelaide, little filly that is trained by Bart Cummings and uh, uh, she's won a couple of races and he wants to bring her over here for the spring and he doesn't have a stable rider anymore. And he was wondering if I could look up a jockey and, but want, you must ride it all the time, you know, you can't get on and off. I said, Mr. Broderick, I've just come back. I've got no ties whatsoever. Uh, I said, I'd love to ride at work and I'll give a decision straight away. So a couple of days later, he rings. He said, she's here. And I said, I'll go out to Flemington. And I, this little ugly, little skinny looking little thing. <laughs> and I looked at her and I said, oh, what have I fallen into here? You know, it's a, and I got on it and I rode at work and, and only light work. And I what a sweet little horse, and, and it barely touched the ground. And I come in and I said to the strapper, I said, what's his name? He said, oh, Light Fingers. I said, who'd call a horse Light Fingers, for goodness sake? Best name I've ever heard of. <laughs> so she... Um, what a wonderful man she Oh, wasn't she? Yeah. She, yeah, I she the favourite? Oh, definitely, she, yeah. yeah. I'm not a, not a hoarder of race photos, but... I've got a, that, that Melbourne Cup, the 1965 Melbourne Cup, I've got this big portrait of uh, her winning the presentation and, and, and whatever, and I build a bar around it. Uh, she, she won that 65 Melbourne Cup. Uh, in a, she in did a, win all those three-year-old classics. Yeah, she was you know, the Melbourne Oaks, Philly. Sydney yeah, Oaks. Yeah. She, she just yeah. went through the lot of them. Yeah. And then she came really back. took you to the top, didn't she? Oh, yeah, the, without a doubt. Yeah. And, and thanks to her... Uh, we just was only just after the start uh, of the 1964-65 racing year yes. premiership, and through her, I won the premiership. First so of eleven. Fir first uh, back, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. Was in in uh, 1964, mm. and thanks to Light Fingers, that she got me going, and uh, that started an association with JB Cummings, 16-year association with him. Um, my first Melbourne Cup. Uh, first real champ that I feel that I was associated with. Um, gee, I just owed her so much. Mm. I really owed Light Fingers. I, I really needed that. Sir Dane was a kickstart. Yeah. And he finished up running favourite in the Caulfield and Melbourne Cup, in which I rode him. He won everything, including the Cox Plate, uh, during that year, apart from the Cups. He failed in both Cups, but won all the weight for age races. He was a help, but Light Fingers was the real sealer to my comeback. To when, she, when she won the Melbourne Cup in 65, she beat Zyma by an absolute inch, right on the line, uh, and there was a sort of a setback, like even up until, was it the Sunday before the Cup? She had a shoulder problem, you didn't she, know whether she'd actually make the race? She, um, in the lead up to the Caulfield Cup, clipped to things heels, coming around the corner uh, in the wait for age race, and 
she was favourite for the Caulfield Cup. And uh, all that week I kept saying to Bart, she's not throwing the shoulder out, she's not really letting it go. And she kept saying, it'll be all right, it'll be all right, don't worry, don't worry. Anyhow, on the Saturday morning, uh, we had to give her a bit of a breeze up and just wasn't there. So she was scratched on the morning of the, the Cup. And that went right through uh, to a Cox Plate day. She ran in the Cox Plate, ran ordinary. Um, I kept saying, Bart, it's still there, it's not going away. And then we ran her in the McKinnon and we had to make a decision. She ran fair in the McKinnon. May have been a spark of light. I'd been off the ride on Matlock, who was favourite for the Melbourne Cup. And I said to George Hanlon, I said, no, George, I said, if she makes it to the Cup, I'll be on her back. Uh, if she doesn't make it, I'll be in the stand, because he had to get a rider. Gee, and fate intervened there, didn't it, because Matlock fell. He clipped like fingers as heels. Incredible. Jimmy Johnson. Yeah. yeah. And about three or four of them came down. Yes, Borsa, yeah. Boarhead, yeah. Uh, something else, yeah. Uh, Beer Street? Yeah, may have been. Yeah, anyhow. Um, anyhow, Bart was standing in the mounting yard after the McKinnon stakes and said, what do you think? I said, I don't know. I said, I, I thought there was a ray of light there. Maybe. He said, okay. He said, well, come out in the morning and have a ride again on the Sunday morning pre-cup. So I go out and Percy Sykes is there. He said, um, Bart, I just got your blood back. He said, uh, she's out of sync completely. The blood's terrible, everything's terrible. She's in pain. And Bart said, I'll go out and ride her and see what you think. So I come back, I said, hey, not the end of the world yet. I said, we've still got two days to go. I said, there's just that little feeling coming there. Percy, the great vet, you know, it's well known to everyone, probably one of the Australia, if not the world's best vet. Uh, he kept shaking his head. Monday morning we get out there early, work over a mile and a quarter, 2,000 metres, and had to do a bit of work coming down the straight. And I said, ah, Bart, big improvement from yesterday to today, maybe not there yet, but getting better, and Percy's standing there. You imbeciles, he said. <laughs> Give up, will you, for goodness sake. Tuesday morning, get out there very early, cup morning. Bart said, just let us stride up two furlongs, 400 metres, not hard. Let her do it herself. I come back, I said, I wish the cup was tomorrow. But I said, he said, what do you reckon we go? I said, let's go. Percy said, you're imbeciles. You've got no hope. The blood's shocking. This is shocking. She went out and beat Zyema by an eighth of an inch. That's And let me assure you, she was 80% fit and still carrying a minor injury and yet was still good enough. I think she carried... Eight stone four, which would be about 52 and a half, mm. 53, somewhere around about there. Uh, that high, midget. Um, How did you feel? 80% and yeah. one. How did you feel having to hit her late in the straight? You know, like you're, you're about to win your first Melbourne Cup. You can see the winning post, mm. Zyme is coming at you, and you've got to get this mare to lift. She's giving her all. Like, this is a Melbourne Cup. How, how did you feel about that? Not good. Uh, not good. I remember pulling up and I, I, I felt sick, actually, uh, away from cameras. And I said, I'd leant back and I was massaging her where I was hitting her with the whip, just thinking that it would have been stinging like hell. Mm. I, when I, I thought to myself, I wish you had given in 200 metres out, then I wouldn't have had to do that. 
But every time I hit her, she'd, she'd keep throwing Sorry. herself yeah. at her. And that's how, that was her. She just refused to give in. Uh, I didn't feel good about it. I just won a Melbourne Cup. But I didn't feel good about yeah. what I'd just done. There's that famous photo of you cuddling her, her neck, her oh, head. Yeah. Uh, love that. Yeah, it's a great love photo. That. And it, it went all around the world. And it's probably best remembered. That uh, that shot after the correct weight's given, you've got your helmet off. We're out in the middle waiting, yeah, for, the waiting for the presentation. And I walked over to pat her and she put her head down and the head came up under my exactly. arm yeah. and she just stayed there while I straightened her forehead yeah. and her head was that far off the ground you know um, but that was our that was our feelings you know I never, a real I, bond between you yeah, and that I was never off her back no. you know no. and she she knew my voice uh, whether they know how you smell or whatever but she always knew my voice when I was there within a few I used to call her mother and uh, my wife was like an old mother. You do anything with her. <laughs> and uh, she, um, she could always see, you know, when, when I'd go to a stall of a morning yeah. to get her, you know, she saw her ears would go up and I'd also have a little uh, minty or something like that for her. So um, we, we had, a, we had a, a great couple of years mm, together. Mm. For two of second in the 66 Melbourne Cup, easily beaten by Galilee, but she tried hard. She ran second there and then... Tried her heart out that year. I'll never forget halfway down the straight, a horse called Duo, I think it was, was in yeah. front. And I've let her down and she's going out after it and she was lifting. She was, she was back to her old self. The only difference this time, she had 50, 57 and a half right. kilos. Yeah. She had nine stone. Yeah. And this little thing with nine stone. And here she is going past all these great big geldings. And I'm heading for home. I said, what about this? Second Melbourne Cup on Mother. And this great big black shadow. Because Johnny Miller rode Zyima the year prior. That's right. And uh, this great big black shadow appeared on my outside. You know, a cheeky Miller was, you know. he just go, this one's mine, lad. <laughs> He's floated past me. Yeah. Oh, he, he was a super horse, that Galilee, horse. Oh, yes. she's yeah. a great horse. 67, you came back uh, again with Bart Cummings on a, on a pretty handy horse called Red Handed. He's not going to be remembered for being a, a champion from no. this time, but he was a, a dour stayer, uh, Red Crest, just about had you, had you at the 200 metre mark. And a bloke called Ron Taylor rode him, a New Zealand jockey, and he was all over him. <laughs> and I think you <laughs> well, sensed that uh, you had a chance to come back and, and pinch the Melbourne Cup from his grasp, really. When I realised what had come up and passed me, I thought, uh, I'm not giving in yet then, yeah. because knowing what those two had been through, Ronnie and his horse, I said, there's going to be, I've, I know mine's 110%, and there's probably about, the jock's only about 60% over there on that one, so that, that really did keep me going. You know, you, you don't give in the Melbourne Cup anyhow, anytime, but that really inspired me to say, I think I can bloody get back to him, you know, it's a, and it did. It worked. Mm. And there was the Caulfield Cup in 69 that you got on protest, of course, uh, when the Sori beat you and mm. you got the race on, on Big Falou and you were pretty confident of getting that. And that amazing situation in the Melbourne Cup when Big Falou was found to be novel mm. an hour before the race. Um, you, you must reflect back on that and think, what would have happened had, you know, obviously the horse was gone. Half an hour out. later. Yeah, if you'd have been out there in the race and the horse dropped. Mm. I've got no doubt. It's time to happen. It was mistimed. It was mistimed. I not to say that because um, the dosage was all wrong. It, it was a killer dosage. Yeah. You know, I think it was just meant to be one to make the horse have a little bit of a pain in the tummy and just be that little bit off on the day. 
and wouldn't be able to perform his best. But they gave him a huge overdose. It nearly killed the horse. Three to four days, he was just purging everywhere. He fell away to skin and bone. Um, That, that, I, I think back and say that could have happened, but probably not because I'd never been off that horse's back. And I'd worked him in the morning and I said, oh, you'd never, ever get this horse better in your life, Bart. I said, you've got no idea just how this horse feels. Yeah. I feel, I said, this is a much bigger, better, stronger horse than we won the Caulfield Cup with, I can tell you now. And I walked away from the track on the Tuesday morning. I was elated. You know, I'm, I was going to win a Melbourne Cup. So when was I would he have got, got on his think? back. When do you think the, 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 the person who got Th- to Those him? things usually take about three or four hours yeah. to really start. So Late morning, something like that. Mid-morning, I would think. Mid-morning. Uh, and he... You know, he he might not have been able to do it exactly on the time that he wanted to do it, you know. He probably had to wait wait for a bit of a break between the workers or something like that to get near the horse. And obviously, uh, uh, I found out later that they detected something about an hour and a half before, that things weren't right with the horse. But it was all hush-hush. They were hoping when they, when they reported it, they thought, hello, this horse may have been got at. Yeah. may have been got out. So they're hoping maybe someone was hanging around looking at who could have been the culprit yes. who gave him the, the, the ball. Yeah. Uh, so everything was hushed up. Even 40 minutes before the race, the foreman come up, or one of our foremen come up, I weighed out and I handed him my saddle. Yeah. My saddle went on down to, to put on the, the horse and he, he knew, but he didn't say anything. Everything was hushed up. Uh, so to try yeah. and catch the perpetrator. Yes, yeah. yeah. It was all it was one of the one of the, it was all a setup. You yeah, know, it was so. one of the most amazing scandals yeah. in racing around our biggest race. I, I'm 20 minutes from the race. I'm oozing with confidence that I'm going to win another Melbourne Cup. And next minute, I'm deflated. You could feel the air coming out of me as to speak. I was just deflated. I got up. I, w- I went to go and get a cup of tea, and I thought. I got over near where the cafeteria was. What am I doing here? I, I just sort of, it was a sort of a shock syndrome. And I, I can't even remember watching that race. Uh, that's just, just how it sort of struck me mm. at the time. I, mm. I just couldn't comprehend. Um, but I, I didn't know the horse was purging down in his stall. I thought when they said he's got at, I thought, oh, they've just got a blood back from him and there's an irregularity in his blood or something, you know. Uh, little did I know that the horse was near death down in his stall, yeah. just purging all over the place. You know. Roy, so just shocking. Just a, how a human being could do that, yes. you know. Yeah. Just, hey, and some, for some lousy $5,000 or something, you know, it's incredible, isn't it? We're celebrating the history of the Melbourne Cup, Australia's greatest race. Leon Corson's joined Bart Cummings as Glenelg Stable in Adelaide in 1972 as foreman. He was with Bart for over 20 years and shared six of Bart's winners, starting with Think Big in 1974. I can remember Think Big coming from New Zealand, if I remember rightly, I forget. Uh, I think it was by So Big out of Saracel or something like that, Brian. I'm not sure on That's correct. and nice, nice bay type of horse. wasn't wasn't over big. Um, 
Because I remember him because we used to have 45 boxes there and he was in the last box, number 45. And every in those days, whenever you went to have a look at him or something, uh, you had to keep putting your head over the top because he wasn't quite that big like, you know. And um, oh, he, yeah, as a cult, he was a nasty little bugger. You'd go in to feed him or something and he'd charge you like, you know, to, to get to the feed. Um, I think it wasn't until Bart sort of gelled at him that he started coming good. But uh, he was one of the first horses, one of, nearly one of the first horses that Bart ever trained for Chinam. Yeah, yeah, and there was that Malaysian connection um, with uh, the Tonku as well, and 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 a Rico Sullivan, a man from Queensland. Yeah, I remember Rick. I think he was a licensed land agent over in Queensland. Um, I remember him because uh, I went over to with some of Bart's horses to Queensland and uh, I stayed, I think it was Mermaid Beach, he had an apartment there and he put Chris and me up in the apartment so it was really good. And just looking at him, um, uh, think big, he had eight starts uh, as a two-year-old and, and won a race and then 15 runs and won five races as a three-year-old but it wasn't until later that he matured into the staying horse that uh, Bart turned him into. Could you see that potential for a horse that was going to go on and win two Melbourne Cups? Um, well, I, I, I was a novice in those days, really. All right, I, I rode and that things like that. Um, as far as training goes, I sort of didn't didn't know a hell of a lot really until I really got working with Bart, like you know. But Bart, Bart always had faith in the horse. No, he said he'll come good. He'll go. And especially when he gelded him, he grew quite a bit and then he matured into a really nice type of horse. Mm. Um, was never over big. I wouldn't say he was the most robust horse, but just carried a lot of muscle on him and I was nice and lean and just a good staying type of horse. At three, he probably showed the potential that he may, uh, may have when he won the Carbine Club on Derby Day. Um, and that was 1973, so he was heading sort of probably in the right direction. In those days, yeah, definitely. Um, Bart used to have, he used to have a great affinity with stone horses in those days, and he'd get the best out of them, uh, Brian, by putting them over a few hurdles or taking them to the ball ring and, and chasing them around the ball ring. And he used to get the best out of a lot of stayers. He made a lot of good stayers doing all that, mm. you know. Uh, and the year of uh, 1974, and you had the great mare in the stable in Leilani. She won the Caulfield Cup. She got the penalty. Great drama around. Um, Roy Higgins actually suspended, not being able to ride Leilani uh, with the 55 and a half in, in, in the Melbourne Cup. She was favourite. And then out of nowhere was this barnstorming finish in 74 of Think Big. Battle Heights went to the front of the 200 metre mark from Leilani. Captain Perry on the outside then is Turf Cutter and Think Big. Leilani is getting uh, two Battle Heights and on the outside Captain Perry. Leilani just in front. Think Big is picking it up down the outside and Think Big has got up to win the cup. At big odds, did you give him any chance? I know. I look. I, I wasn't. I was still in Adelaide at that time, and Ron McDonald was running the place, and I used to get on really, really well with Ron. And uh, Ron kept in touch with me, and he thought that the horse would run a very, very big race. But I think, I think the idol was Leilani. Uh, everyone 
idolised Leilani. Uh, she'd done everything, and I think they thought that she was practically past the post. Mm. I remember I had a good double going, Leilani, Leilani in the cup stubble, and uh, being in the broadcast box with uh, the late Bert Bright, and when she dashed clear, I thought, I'm home and hosed here, and then what's this in the Cummings colours just flew out of the ground, didn't it? Oh, he did, he did, yeah. It was, but it was one of typical Harry rides, wasn't it? Like, you know, he had a great affinity with the horse, Harry. Um, he just he used to put him to sleep and sort of nursed him, nursed him, and I always got the best out of him. And then he came back in 75. He didn't win a race between the Melbourne Cup of 74 and, and the Melbourne Cup of 75. Uh, the track came up heavy. It was a very, very grey, bleak day, wet track. And again, I think, we gave him little or no chance. Uh, you had Holiday Wagon and another horse in the race, and I think Bart was sort of quite confident about Holiday Wagon that year. Well, I think I think they all done their money that day on Holiday Wagon, especially being a wet track. Um, I think Big definitely wasn't wasn't known for handling wet tracks. He's a big striding horse, and uh, he never handled it. And this particular day, just I suppose everything went right for him. He handled it, and uh, I think he just got up and uh, and beat Holiday Wagon. With about 200 metres left to go, and Thing Beggar's got to the front from Medici down the outside as Holiday Wagon. But Thing Beggar's the leader. Holiday Wagon is coming home well, followed by Medici. Then Suleiman can't win, but Thing Big wins. I think there were a lot of disappointed faces because I know all the money went on Holiday Wagon. <laughs> That's racing, as they say. Let's fast forward to 77 and Golden Black. So you said you are now based in Melbourne from a stable in Adelaide. Um, back uh, up at uh, at Flemington, Golden Black. He uh, he was a horse that came into calculations sort of late in the lead up to the Cup, but he looked the right horse for the right day, didn't he? Look, he really blossomed going into the Cup, and he's the first Cup we had him in. Uh, we thought that he was past the post till we got to the races, and the rains came, Brian, and we were all so disappointed. Um, we didn't think he'd handled. So we sort of, once the rains came, we were into the unknown. We didn't know what would happen, like, you know. Uh, I, thought he, I thought he ran a glorious race to run second. Yeah, that was the day of Vanderham. Yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. And I, I said, I wish he'd have stayed home. <laughs> <laughs> what a day that was. It looked like Armageddon. It looked like the end of the world when that storm hit and they put the Melbourne Cup back about 35 minutes and it looked as though there was some chance of the race being cancelled. It was the, the greatest storm that's ever hit Flemington, I think, uh, in modern time at the time uh, but they, they got the race run on the wet tracker, the duck uh, from New Zealand was Vanderham and he ploughed through the mud, you could barely recognise them but he got revenge in 77 because the conditions were right The conditions were right, the horse absolutely blossomed going into the race I reckon that oh maybe three weeks or so before the race he just got a little virus, he got over that pretty quick and I'd say the last week into the race he just blossomed and I think he beat Reckless, and uh, uh, we weren't we weren't very very you know well liked at that time because Reckless was the was the sort of glamour right. horse at the time, like mm. you know, mm. and uh, oh no, but he won he won it really nice. Johnny Duggan rode him. Yeah. Was there some controversy around Johnny Duggan? Wasn't there talk that Johnny Duggan may be replaced uh, in the Melbourne Cup leading into it? I. Look, I can't remember that really, uh, Brian. Um, I think he would have been very, very disappointed if he had been. Uh, if Look, I, I think that the owner really liked Johnny Duggan. Oh, I can't think of the owner's name now. Gage? Uh, Huey Gage, but there was a fellow from Adelaide that had 
the majority share in the horse. Harris. Uh, yeah, yeah, Jack Harris, that's right. And uh, oh, Jack loved loved Johnny Duggan, so uh, I'd say John, Johnny Duggan would have definitely been riding the horse. And Johnny rode it brilliantly too. That was 77. We go to Hyperno in 79, and Roy Higgins tells the story about Hyperno. He uh, used to have nightmares over Hyperno. Um, Roy was caught dropping his hands in the Mooney Valley Cup in, in 78 when the horse was prepared by uh, the late Jeff Murphy. But the horse came to the stable and just reading the the articles of the time, Bart apparently knocked the horse back. He didn't want to take him a few times. Uh, the owners wanted to transfer from Murphy to Bart, uh, but he finally finished up in your stable. Yeah, I'll tell you what happened. I think, Brian, that we were having... Uh, a barbecue up at Geoffrey Levitt's place up at Coolmore and Dr Ray Lake was there at the time and I think Hyperno was out spelling, I think he had uh, tendon trouble and he'd been out for roughly I think about 10, 10 to 12 months and uh, Ray Lake started talking to Bart about Hyperno and I used to love Hyperno because he looked like being a really good horse when Jeff had him like you know, um, every time uh, I think Dorks used to ride him quite a bit. And uh, every time he sort of went for him, he just turned his head on the side. Mm. And that, I, I, you know, after seeing that he come down with a tendon, I, I thought, well, that's why he kept turning the head on the side, like, you know, uh, he must have been hurt and, and under pressure all the time. And uh, Ray Lake started talking to Bart, and he said to Bart, oh, Bart, we've got a horse. We'd like you to train it. And the horse is Hyperno. And Bart was sort of humming and hawing, and you know, he said, "Oh, he said that, that's one of Murph's horses." He said, "Oh, he said I wouldn't like to take a horse off of him." He said, "He'll never forgive me." <laughs> anyway, Ray kept talking to him, and oh, Bart said, "Oh, look, the best I could do is maybe make a hurdle out of him, like you know." So we, we, I kept nudging him all the time because I, I, I loved the horse, and I wanted, 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 hope, hopefully we could get him, like you know. Mm. And uh, finally, we we finished up with the horse, and uh, we put a lot of time into him. I think we had him up at Jeffrey Levitt's place because Bart done quite a bit of pre-training at Jeffrey's place at that time. I think it was called Willem Avon, and um, um, I used to go up there have a look at him, see how he was going, and just keep an eye on that leg. And he came along really nice. So. Uh, um, I, I, I forget now the first prep, I think it was the second prep we had him when he went into the Melbourne Cup. And uh, I don't know, the horse just wasn't firing, just wasn't firing. And I kept saying to Bart, oh, Jeff used to have blinkers on this horse, Bart. He never showed nothing till. And But the horse in himself at the time, Brian, wasn't coming. He wasn't responding to the work we were giving him. He wasn't responding to the feed. He just looked just looked off for a long time and he kept riding the horse he kept riding the horse and I think the last time he got riding was at the valley I reckon it was a 2500 meter race there and uh, he was disappointing he we thought that he'd finish the race off nicely and he'd done nothing anyway um Bart rang me he said Put that horse in the trial. This was Saturday that the horse raced in the 2,500-metre race. And Bart said, he said, put the blinkers on that horse. He said, trial him Tuesday, put the blinkers on him. He said, throw he go on him and just see what he says. Anyway, we put the blinkers on him. And lo and behold, look, the horse just went to the front and just 
towed, he go, you know, he'd look, he'd done in a 2,500-metre race and come out on one-and-a-half-mile trial. So it was just unbelievable, the transform, transformation in the horse. Mm. And even in his work, he started coming better. His coat looked better. But uh, after the trial, look, after the trial, I know Higo had a different submission. He says what he wants you to believe. But I know for a fact, I said to Roy, I said, you're going to ride him in the, I think it was the McKinnon Stakes on the Saturday. And Roy was humming and hawing. He said, oh, I'll wait, I'll wait till acceptances and this and that. So I rang Bart. And Bart was very smart in those days. He's, he knew what was going on and he said, he said, look, he said, ring Harry White, he said, and get him to ride that horse straight away. He said, don't worry about Higo. Higo's riding Salamander. He said, they've backed Salamander for a lot, a lot of money in the cup. He said, he won't be riding our horse. He said, you get on to Harry straight away. So I told Higo what was happening. <laughs> he wasn't happy. <laughs> anyway, um, Harry rode the horse and he had the blinkers on in the in the McKinnon Stakes, I reckon he missed the start by a couple of lengths. And it, I, if I remember, he ran third or fourth, and it was an enormous run. And we were full of confidence with the run that he had going into the Cup. And uh, history now records that Salamander and Hyperno, two great riders, Harry White and Roy Higgins, went to the line absolutely locked together. <laughs> you, you can only imagine how Roy Higgins must have felt when the print went Hyperno's way. <laughs> I could. What did he say to you? <laughs> Look, I used to get on great with him. I thought he was a bloody champion. Um, but I couldn't help but smile after the race. I said, you pulled the wrong one, mate. <laughs> and he's that. <laughs> um, but I remember Tommy, I, I, the, the grandstand in those days was packed like, you know, and I watched the race on television anyway. Um, I, I went out into the one enclosure after and I stood straight by number one because on TV, the horse, our horse had definitely won the race, like, you know. And Tom, Tom Hughes came up to me. He said, what do you think, son? What do you think? I said, oh, I think, sorry, Tom, but I think we beat you because I, I used to love Tommy. I thought he was a great guy, you know. Um, and I think I said, I think we beat you. He says, don't tell Bart. He said, don't tell Bart. He said, I'll go and save with him. <laughs> Bart would be too smart for that. Oh, I'm bloody sure he was. <laughs> <laughs> the 80s, no cups in the 80s. Uh, lean times for Bart with the um, uh, the fire sale and the syndication that he formed. And um, he looked as though he was just about gone. Um, and he came back. He was amazing. Yeah, you'd never ever say that about J.B. Cummings gone. Like, you know. Um, you know, Brian, I found Bart when... I reckon when he was down like that, it was always at his best. He was always striving to find ways and means how to get out of it, like, you know. And he did get out of it. He had to take your hat off to him because he was in a lot of trouble there for a long while. The, ni- the 90s was a good time um, and you had a lot to do with horses like Kingston Rule and, and Let's Elope, 90 and 91. We did have a hell of a lot to do. Um, Kingston Rule... Um, Quirky sort of a horse. Um, I remember, I think he won really nice at Sandown a race and then we took him to Flemington. And as we were walking uh, down the race into the into the mountain yard, he pulled a shoe, so we had to take him back. And he was red-hot favourite that day. We had to take him back, get the farrier to, to put the shoe back on. 
and oh look, honestly, by the time the farrier had finished, he was just—he looked like an ice cream. Honestly, you'd think we'd just painted him white. He was just sweating like hell. And I said to Bart, then I said we should pull him out. I said we should pull him out, like you know. Mm. And the horse ran accordingly. Yeah. yeah. Melbourne Cup day with uh, Darren Beadman uh, on. He, he just settled right behind the pace, and you, I remember calling that race and watching the replay now, he was never going to get beaten. He had so much horse underneath him, didn't he? he look, he just towed him to the line, but, oh, look, it was a brilliant ride by Darren, like, you know. Uh, couldn't, have, couldn't have possibly rode him any better. Yeah. And a track record. Yeah, well, he just kept going and going, didn't he, like, you know. And he really he really stayed well, better than I ever expected, like, you know. What about Let's Elope? She came here uh, with Weekend Delight, I reckon, with the two fillies that arrived at the stable. And what were first impressions about her? Well, um, I think I was on long service leave when... when uh, <laughs> you have long service? <laughs> I don't know how, especially with Bart. You know what Bart was like. Um, I think I was over in Austria at the time. And... Uh, Ian Lewis and Russell, Russell, I can't remember Russell's second name. Robinson? Robinson, Russell Robinson. They rang me from uh, from Melbourne to in Austria and they said, we've bought you two really good horses. He said uh, one was not Weekend Delight, it was Richfield Lady. Richfield Lady, yeah. Richfield Lady. And um, uh, Dennis Marks owned both of them and Let's Elope. Um, anyway, I come back and... I had a look at Let's Elope, and honestly, she, she just looked like a big draft horse, like, you know, she's she's just a monster she was, whereas the other one, uh, Richfield Lady, was a very, very nice filly and had a lot of possess about her, like, you know. Uh, I think we trialled them, oh, one Tuesday morning on the course proper along the back from the mile and a quarter they started, and it was a really heavy track, and Richfield Lady just ploughed through she won a trial nicely and you went along her merry way like, you know, pulled up really good. And uh, I forget now who rode uh, Let's Elope. Uh, I think it was uh, Kevin Moses' son rode it. Anyway, she jumped out. I think, I think she hit the ground and it was just like she pulled up. <laughs> well, the ground was a quagmire. And she must have finished, oh, I'd say, half a furlong behind the second last horse. And uh, I remember ringing Dennis Marks up and saying, uh, Mr Marks, I, I think the other filly goes really, really good, but you want to hope to hell that uh, this other mare doesn't handle a wet track, I said, because she was bloody hopeless. And uh, I think we run a... Oh, yeah, I think the first run was at Caulfield. It was in a sprint race, 1,200 metres. Uh, the track was good, and she worked home really, really nice. And her next run was at uh, Flemington. It was a 1,400-metre race. I think it's now the Let's Elope Handicap. That was her next run, and she... don't know whether she finished third or fourth. I'm not quite certain there, but she rattled home really nice. And that, then the next run was... Uh, a show day handicap at the Caulfield and we thought she was a living certainty. Shane Dye came down to ride it. Um, Joey and I both unleashed. I think it's the last big punt I ever, ever had. Um, it, we had a little bit of rain that night but nothing to really talk about. Anyway, we said to Shane Dye, look, Shane, um, just pull this out the top of the straight and 
she'll do the rest, Lord. You know, that's how well she was going. Anyway, he pulled her out the top of the straight, and that's where she stayed. <laughs> Joe and I both cried. <laughs> we were really unleashed. We had a really good go. Uh, that was the finish of my punt. I'll give it away after that. I think she won an X7. She won an X7, and I did ring Bart up, and I told her we took, I think we, we took her to the ball ring and gave her a couple of laps over the jumps, and we put a set of blinkers on her. And I thought she'd go right with the blinkers on. Anyway, we worked her one morning, and we waited till Desi Spain left the track because I thought she'd go pretty good with it. I said to Joey, when you get to the 600, pick her up and rouse her right up like, you know. Anyway, honestly, I watched it. She worked on the steeple grass in those days, and uh, it was just like a V8 taken off when you put it into second gear. It just went woof. And she just... Uh, and I remember ringing Bart up. I said, I think this will win the weight for age race. I, I, I said, um, he's, and he said to me then, he said, well, Sonny, he said, if you think that, he said, you better go and take the doubles. Let's elope, let's elope. I said, all right, no worries, no worries. And did you? <laughs> no, I took let's elope and she was range. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Protest, second against first. <laughs> That's the way it goes. Yeah. yeah. But, um, oh, she was on a good track, Brian. She was an absolute champion. Uh, did you call the race when she won the Australian Cup? Uh, when she won, and that, if you, if you remember, Chiquita Lodge, she went from travelling really nice to almost almost back to last. And I think Beedman rode her that day, and he knew her pretty well, Beedy. And uh, he just sort of, there must have been a really wet patch there. And she just went to pieces, so he's held her together, held her together, and just picked up momentum, and she was just too good for me to finish. I, re- I remember that race vividly. She, um, she came around the turn behind them. And when Beedman let her go in that Australian Cup, and I think she ran close to two minutes, she was airborne. It was just the most emphatic win. She had wings. Uh, look, honestly, she she was truly a, a champion, I reckon. Like, you know, I don't think we've ever, ever seen the best of her. So that was towards the end of, uh, it was the mid-90s that uh, you left and went out on your own. But when you reflect back on Bart, and I've asked Joey Agress to the same, what was the key to him? How, how did he do it? and do it so often and so well? I really don't know, Brian, because what people don't realise that, you know, it wasn't even just his cup winners or his placings in the cup. There were so many horses that he did run in the cup and you would have swore these are never going to get bloody two miles, like they've got no hope, you know. We had sprinters in, 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 in the cup and they still run huge races, you know. It was just... I don't know. He always used to say to me, that's how my dad, Jim, used to do it. He said, that's how I done it. So, so he, he used to always talk about the feeding of the horses and that's what he would have inherited from uh, from his father, Jim. Um, and when you when you look back, his first cup runner was 1958. He strapped Comic Court in 1950. And it's, it's incredible when you go down through the years and the, I think five Cornellas, 12 winners of the Melbourne Cup, five Cornellas, is how he had the clock in his head to time that to the first Tuesday in November. Yeah, but it just seemed to you, you say, oh, it's 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 good luck, it's good luck, but you couldn't say twelve times. It's definitely not good luck. Like you know, I th- I just reckon it was just the way he he brought them through their gears and and just maintained whatever he did with the other horses. He did exactly the same with all of them. 